0: Macarena and macaroni. This is going to be difficult. Macarena and macaroni. (laughs) That'll be the title
1: for this episode Macarena and macaroni.
0: What does the macarena and macaroni have in common? Probably nothing except for our (laughs) podcast. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Welcome to Not Yet a Doctor, the podcast where biology is just applied chemistry, chemistry is just applied physics, physics is just applied maths, and maths is, well, complicated. (laughs) My name is Alistair. I am a PhD student in analytical chemistry at Queen's University.
0: My name is Sienna, and I'm a neuroscience student at McGill
1: University. Uh,
2: My name is Beth, and I'm doing my PhD in particle physics at Sapienza University of Rome.
1: And we are the PhD three to be.
2: Alistair, can I just say I love the introduction. I mean, like, I know you took an XKCD meme and like voiced it, but I still really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah. Shout out to XKCD for the intro.
2: (laughs) I also really enjoyed the S on the end of maths.
1: You're welcome. I did that specifically for you. A lot of people in our North American audience probably wouldn't understand, but, you know. (laughs) we cater to the brits
0: apparently we, we cater to,
1: <laughs> to the loudest yeah. vocal complainers um anyway <laughs> um yes I was adapted from an xkcd comic i think it's randall monroe writes them really great comics i recommend you check them out today i, I the reason I, I said that is because today we're talking about something that is kind of physics we're going to get into a lot of physics and it is chemistry. But also, we're going to talk a bit about the biology and how it's used in biology. Today, we are going to talk about NMR and MRI. And I first wanted to ask if you know what NMR and MRI are.
0: Like what they stand for?
1: Yeah, what they stand for. I can. What you know about them?
0: Give this a go. NMR stands mm-hmm. for nuclear magnetic resonance, mm-hmm. and MRI stands for magnetic resonance imaging. That's correct. And. MRI machines are really big magnets and yep. you put people inside of them and they make really loud noises
1: and you can image the brain with them. Have you ever had an MRI? No, I've never had an MRI. I have. Have you? I've never had one. So what? what's it like being in an MRI? Yeah, how it's is it?
2: It's kind of pretty claustrophobic. Like I'm not claustrophobic, but you definitely feel enclosed and like if you were claustrophobic, I can really imagine that would be a really, really stressful circumstance for you. But then it's just, like, it's kind of fine. Like, you have to s- lie super, super still, which is difficult. But then, at the end of the day, like, it's pretty safe. And you're just lying there and not having to do anything. And there's nobody else in the room with you. There's Like, it's not invasive in the sense, like, nobody's prodding you or anything.
0: hmm So. Mm-hmm. Did you get to
2: take a nap in worse. there?
0: Did you listen to music?
2: Yeah, they, like, um, put headphones on you. So you can like listen to the radio or whatever, or at least in the ones that I've had, even like listen to the radio and
0: mm-hmm.
2: chill out, I guess.
0: Cool. As
2: much mm-hmm. as you can when there's really loud noises going around you.
1: Yeah, they they are really loud because in my research, I found a video actually put out by Philips, who makes MRI machines, and it was a VR virtual reality scan and so you could go in and lie in the machine and kind of see what it would be like and they had the real noises that it makes and it's this really weird like knocking clunk clunk yeah like yeah, yeah it's it's interesting and i know why that happens so we'll talk about that Ooh, but before uh... we talk about mri we have to talk about nmr nuclear magnetic resonance because the techniques that are involved in mri actually were developed from nmr so nmr is a super cool analysis technique and I don't actually do research with it but I love it because <laughs> my, my favorite thing about it is it's a non-destructive analysis technique so a lot of the work that I do and a lot of analytical techniques you destroy your sample to look at what's in them if you think about when we talked about plasmas we're putting our liquid sample in the plasma and it's getting broken apart into its ions so nothing remains afterwards. Um, well, the ions go up the exhaust, but like it's everything gets obliterated. NMR, you can actually look at stuff in its, not in its environment, but without destroying it. And so that's what I think is so cool, is you can find out what's in a sample without destroying it. And not only can you find out what's in the sample, but you can actually determine the structure of molecules from this technique. And... I think it's kind of cool because with biology, you can have a microscope and look down at the cells and you can see these microscopic cells that you're working on. And in physics, you can't really see the quarks and gluons and neutrinos. But in chemistry, it's this weird middle ground where sometimes you can see the crystal structures or you can use electron scanning microscopes to see really, really fine structure. But to actually be able to see, in air quotes, the structure of a molecule like, see what a benzene ring looks like in a, like, you can, you can see it. And I think that's so cool. Um, So before we had NMR, we had uh, something called x-ray crystallography. We still have x-ray
0: crystallography. (laughs) Sorry, yes. (laughs) As a biologist, I have to say this.
1: (laughs) Yes. Um, But before, before NMR was developed, the way that we found out structures of things was through x-ray crystallography. And... It's a destructive technique. You have to actually crystallize your molecule and get it into a crystal structure so you can see its x-ray pattern. Um and so when NMR came along it was kind of groundbreaking because you could see your structures without making crystals.
2: Um what if your molecule was nonpolar and didn't form crystals?
1: Then you couldn't you couldn't really see it with X-ray crystallography.
2: You couldn't know anything about, like, hydrocarbons or...
1: Exactly, exactly. Um, And so I'm going to kind of skip over the history of NMR. I know I just kind of dipped my toe into it with talking about X-ray crystallography, but um, the majority of these concepts were discovered by physicists and chemists over the 1920s to 1940s, and it's a really long kind of winding history of uh, looking at magnets and how they affect uh, protons and, and all this kind of stuff. And I just want to get into the actual theory and tell you how it works and then talk about MRIs and talk about a really cool study that was done using all the techniques. Can we just um,
0: quickly um, sum up what x-ray crystallography is again, just for our listeners who may not be familiar with the technique?
1: Sure. I could, I could maybe do an episode on it. Um, I'm not super familiar with it myself, but basically you take your molecule and you crystallize it, so you put it into a crystal structure, so all of the molecules are um, closely associated with each other in a solid form, and then you fire x-rays at it, and the x-rays will deflect off of this crystal structure in a certain pattern, and then based on that pattern that you see on the other side, so the x-rays hit like a a special screen, and you look at the pattern that is made by the x-rays, and then you can kind of like backtrack the x-ray beams to figure out what the crystal structure was, And then determine what the actual structure of the single molecule was. It's a very complicated and kind of nuanced technique. There's a lot of chemists that have spent 10s and 20s, 10s and 20s. There's a lot of (laughs) chemists that have spent uh, decades working on it and studying it because it is not an easy technique to uh, do.
2: It's all quantum mechanics, isn't it?
1: I think so. Yeah. So NMR. What is it? Nuclear magnetic resonance. We're going to go through each of those, and at each stage, I'm going to tell you a little bit cool. about what's going on in the molecule. And hopefully, by the end, you will understand what the technique does and how it works and why I think it's so cool. Yay. Okay. So,
2: we definitely hope so. Yeah.
1: So, nuclear. Every atom has a nucleus consisting of protons and neutrons. Some elements have more protons than neutrons, some have less. The most simple one is hydrogen with one proton in its nucleus and one electron orbiting around it. We're not going to talk about the electrons in this episode. They do play a small role in NMR, but we'll just leave them out because... Because we care about the nucleus today. Exactly. It's nuclear (laughs) magnetic (laughs) resonance because it's the nucleus. Okay. So... Protons have intrinsic properties associated with them, like mass and charge, and one of them is a quantum mechanical property that is important for NMR called spin. Yeah! And this is an interesting thing I think I realized a bit late on in my uh, learning in physics and science is that quantum mechanical, or quantum mechanics, sounds like this fancy word, we throw it around, quantum computing and stuff, but it really means that things can be quantized or like in very distinct boxes or states. And so protons can have a spin in two quantized states. They can either be spin up or spin down. We also call that positive half or negative half.
0: Can I just tell you what um, quantum means in neuroscience?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Because
0: yeah, I know. I think it's one of those funny words that like you associate with physics and computing and they are like, Quantum, this means, like, maybe off in space or, like, on such a small level that it's, like, mystical and magical. But in neuroscience, it actually just means, like, a quanta is the smallest unit of neurotransmitter that one neuron can send to another. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, I can have, like, quantum release of neurotransmitters because you presumably can count the number of, like, vesicles that contain neurotransmitters that are released by a neuron. And each of these... So yeah, quantizing That's
2: really interesting Because then people say like Ah, there's been a quantum leap In XYZ topic Which Um, is a very small leap leap. (laughs) Yeah, just a very small But (laughs) well-defined leap Mm -hmm. That's really interesting
1: And so what it means for NMR Is we have these There's only two spin up and spin down and they're the two quantized states of a proton and so this is now how we get we've that's the nuclear part now we talk about the magnetic part and this is the really interesting part uh the physics and the chemistry of it. So
0: can we just think of this mm-hmm. is the spin just pretty much like if you took a proton and you spun it like a top it would either be spinning left or right but we talk about it in up and down because of yes. physics and chemistry probably
1: <laughs> yeah. So, so protons behave as if they are spinning. Yeah. And to keep things simple, we'll think of it like a spinning basketball or yeah. a spinning top. So you can think about it like it's, it's, it's spinning. And um, using the right-hand rule, if you remember from our episode on plasmas, I briefly mentioned the right-hand rule. So you take your right hand. Got it. And if they are spinning in the counterclockwise direction, your fingers are going to curl in that direction. So you make them curl... In the counterclockwise direction and your thumb points up. And that would make it be the spin-up proton. If they are spinning in the clockwise direction, your fingers have to curl in the opposite direction, your right hand. Yeah, you I know, gotta flip your hand upside down, your hand goes in the clockwise direction, and your thumb should point your right hand thumb should point down. And that's what we can think of as the spin down proton. So this means if we have a spinning charge, we will have a small dipole, kind of like a bar magnet, on the proton. And I should have mentioned before we did this whole hand, right-hand rule thing, this is to determine the magnetic moment of a moving charge. And so you can curl your fingers in one way, and we get our dipole pointing up, and if we curl them the other way, we get the dipole pointing down, and that's spin up and spin down.
0: What does it mean if the dipole is pointing up or down?
1: It's just the two states that the proton can be in. It can be either spin up or spin down. It's the two quantum states. So it would essentially affect um, the
2: direction of that magnetic field. So instead of having the north at the top, then yes. like you've used, okay. if you flip the proton, then the north will be at the bottom instead.
0: So, so it is sort of the yeah, yeah the basically. direction of north was what I was. Yes. wondering. yeah, yeah. It's
1: it's the direction of Your north. Your thumb is the direction of yeah. north. And and you can also in the in the proton, <laughs> guys, not in geography. Yeah. Don't worry. And and you can also think of it like. It's the proton either spinning clockwise or counterclockwise, um, because there's going to be a lot of spinning involved in this episode, and I don't <laughs> want you to get dizzy. So we think about this, the spinning proton, and it creates this magnetic moment. So let's think about the magnetic moment as itself. It's got a north and a south pole. It's like a bar magnet. The proton is like a bar yeah. magnet. Okay? And in general everyday life, as we walk around, these little bar magnets are randomly whizzing around kind of willy-nilly. And they're affected by other bar magnets around them, other protons around them. They're affected by the Earth's magnetic field. They're affected by a lot of things. So they're kind of just randomly whizzing around. But what happens when we put them in a magnetic field? Well, when you put a bar magnet in a magnetic field, the bar magnets all align with that field. So you Mm -hmm. can think of it like a compass. A compass will align with the Earth's magnetic field, right? Which is why it always points north. Exactly. So if you put um, these protons in a strong enough magnetic field, you will have protons uh, in the direction of the magnetic field, which is the low energy state, and some of them against the direction of the field, which is the high energy state. Right. It's it's going to be very energetically unfavorable. It's not going to be favorable for them to go against the magnetic field, but some of them (laughs) will just because that's how they can align. And this is determined by something called the Boltzmann distribution. Uh, we will we will come back to it, and I'll explain it more a little bit later.
0: So if we dump a beaker full of protons, I don't know, in <laughs> in a magnetic field, which is practically like air full of arrows. It's just a bunch of arrows, and they all point in the same direction.
1: Okay, yeah.
0: Or mostly the same direction. And you dump a beaker of protons in there and each proton has its own little arrow stuck to its head mm-hmm. those arrows are mostly going to point in the same direction as the big arrows mm-hmm. but some of them are going to turn their backs and be like no i'm going to point the other way and point their arrows away from these
1: yes and yeah. and this is determined by the Boltzmann distribution but verified with einstein's constants of one of the relativities i don't know which one actually but there, <laughs> there is a there is a physical description for how many will be going with the flow and how many will be going against the flow or with the field and against the field. I don't really want to get bogged down in the physics of it.
0: So a magnet is just a bandwagon and most people are going to go with the bandwagon and jump on the bandwagon, (laughs) but some people are not. (laughs) There's always going to be those countercultural people who don't jump the bandwagon, right? Exactly. This (laughs) is just proton and magnetic field dynamics.
1: But because these protons aren't stationary bar magnets, right? They, They are actually spinning something interesting happens. So I want you to think of like a spinning top. When you have a, a, a top and you spin it, like an in inception, and it's spinning and spinning and spinning, <laughs> it's working against the force of gravity. It's yeah. keeping itself up against a very strong pull downwards. As it loses some energy, it's actually doing this all the time, but it's more noticeable near to the end of the top spinning. It starts to wobble, but it does it in a certain precession. we call it precession. And so these protons don't actually just align with the field. They actually process around the field. So like I said, there's a lot of spinning involved, but this this bar magnet (laughs) isn't just stationary. Because the proton is spinning, it actually rotates around the field itself. It precesses around the field. Does that make sense?
0: So the protons are a bit wobbly.
1: Yeah, a bit wobbly, but the wobbliness is quantifiable and determined by something called the Larmor equation. Or, sorry, they process at the Larmor frequency. So, some of these will be processing upwards, and some of them are processing downwards against the field, right? Because some are going with the field, some aren't on the bangling wagon, or countercultural. Now, because we have these protons processing, if we place a coil around this kind of spinning bar magnet, we now have a change in the magnetic flux as the bar sweeps side to side within the coil. So if you place the coil at the right orientation, this processing bar magnet will sweep into the coil and then out of the coil, and then into the coil or to one side of the coil and to the other side. The coil can just be any coil of metal, and you've placed it. You've placed it so that the the, the wrapping of the coil, like the rings, go in line with the field, so that the spinning processing. Protons or bar magnets go inside and outside the coil.
0: I would picture it like you put like jello and then you tap the jello so it's wobbly and then you put a coil around it and sometimes the jello because it's kind of mushy and soft is going to wobble outside the in between the coils and sometimes back in and that jello would be our like yeah. mass of protons.
2: I would say that's probably quite a good description because like the impulse of one of the, like atoms of, jello as they call it in North America, like then, <laughs> tr- like that impulse is transmitted to the next atom and along like that to the other side, and yeah. like all of the protons are like interacting like that mm-hmm. with each other as well.
1: So, just to recap, um, we've got these protons that have a spin and they act like a bar magnet. And these bar magnets are randomly whizzing about normally, but when we put them in a very strong magnetic field, they align with that field and some against the field. And because they align, they actually process. They spin like a wobbling top. Mm -hmm. And this happens, but we want to be able to detect it. So to detect it, we put a coil of wire specifically oriented so that the processing protons process kind of in and out of the coil, Mm -hmm. and because of Lenz's law, when you have a changing magnetic field in a coil, it induces a voltage in Mm -hmm. that wire. Um, If you want to detect these protons really well, they're processing around the field, but they're basically parallel to the field. So they're basically kind of wobbling around this field in the same direction. And you can think of it like the top, when you first spin it, it's got a bit of a wobble, but it's not really perceptible or detectable. You really can detect the wobble or the precession of the top when it's almost fallen over. It's almost perpendicular to the field, and it's really Mm -hmm. going around and around. And that's how we can maximize our detection. That's how we can maximize seeing these protons, is by pushing them to be Uh perpendicular to the field, or 90 degrees to the field. Because then they are going to instead of just wobbling about the field a little bit they're going to fully kind of go around and around and this will be detectable the most by our coil so this is where we get into the resonance of nuclear magnetic resonance so these protons as i said are precessing as at a certain rate or a frequency called the larmor frequency so that's you know how long it takes for one rotation of one precession of the bar I magnet.
0: hope you know I'm probably not gonna remember any of these names.
1: That's okay, that's not on the quiz at the end. <laughs> <Phew>. I just <laughs> wanted to be sure.
0: Like otherwise I'll be taking notes being like I gotta write down all these names so I can pass the quiz.
1: <laughs> it's okay, I'm just I'm honestly throwing in these words to satiate my NMR friends who oh, no. would probably give me flack for not mentioning, you know, why? what's well, called the Larmor frequency. Why didn't you say so? Okay, So resonance, nuclear magnetic resonance. What does the resonance mean? Well, we've got these protons processing at the Larmor frequency. They're going around at a certain rate. If we send a radio frequency, or RF, pulse, at exactly the same frequency, but 90 degrees to the main magnetic field, it will cause the protons to process around that field, and we call that field B1. The main magnetic field is B0, and this RF pulse is a new magnetic field called B1, which actually causes the protons to rotate around that field.
0: So if we go back to the image of the mental image of Beth standing with a coil around her mm-hmm. and her head is the top north of magnetic field and her feet are the south. If now she stuck her arms
1: out left, right, that mm-hmm. would
0: be this B1 radio
1: frequency field. Correct. And I just want to clarify cuz I don't think I really got it through correctly before. The coils are like a hamster wheel. If if Beth is our our bar magnet. You're welcome. It's like a hamster wheel. So she's looking at the coils and they're behind her. They're not going around left and right. They're going around front to back. Ah, and so Beth Beth is Beth is that was processing. Not clear. No, I know. Um so Beth is processing in a circle kind of left forwards left back right forwards left back right. She's processing like that, but the coils are going around her like a hamster wheel.
0: So like if um, she had honestly,
1: two hula hoops the on her shoulders
2: that I do for and they like were she connected.
1: Has, yes, like she has two hula hoops on her shoulders and they were connected because then as she processes, she goes in and out of the coil. I see. As that she makes goes around. a lot more sense. Mhm. But the field to so the B naught field would be going from feet to head. Yeah. But the B1 field that we're causing that we want to cause the protons to process at 90 degrees is at 90 degrees. So it's it's her arms. Yeah. And if Beth is our, our proton magnetic moment, <laughs> she is going to slowly tip down, even though she's processing around the main field, she's gonna slowly tip down to 90 degrees, so she will be sweeping much larger largerly. <laughs> She's going to have a much larger sweep through the coil, and it'll be better detected by our coil. She'll have to have really good abs for that.
2: I have a question. Yeah. Have I taken a motion sickness pill? Before
1: this? <laughs> only if only if you think you can get motion sick, because we haven't even done the full flip yet. Oh, no. no. <laughs> oh you, no. Probably, <laughs> you probably would want to take some motion sickness pills. Um, yeah, okay. There's a lot of spinning going on. Um, so this this radio frequency pulse that we put in um, for a, a okay. short burst is called the spin flip because that's what it's doing is it's flipping our spins 90 mm-hmm. degrees to the main magnetic field so we can see them better. So the RF the RF pulse does three things and it's really cool. It first of all causes mm-hmm. the spins to go to 90 degrees. But it also mm-hmm. causes all of the protons in your sample, to go to 90 degrees and sync up in phase. Because you're you're firing a, a radio frequency pulse mm-hmm. that has a certain phase, a, a certain...
0: It's like a wave, right?
1: I don't know, how do you describe uh, phase? Like we talked yeah, about it's like in a our other
0: episode, it's just the distance between the peak and the trough, really. Or the...
1: I guess That's the peak the and the peak. That's the
2: frequency. The phase is like... the phase...
1: If two things are in phase, they are yeah. having peaks at the same time. If they're out of phase yeah. the peaks are not happening at the same time.
2: Is it when the Macarena yes. is it yeah like
1: when
0: the Macarena comes on at the club and we all jump at <laughs> the same time Macarena. yeah it's the yes Macarena. and everyone yes. jumps 90 <laughs> degrees Macarena. at the same time. It's a fantastic analogy yes and they're all a... <laughs> perfectly synced up because they're really <laughs> good at dancing.
1: <laughs> that's good. yeah okay but the other thing it does the final thing it does yep. is if the RF pulse is high enough energy which you can tune it to it will cause an even distribution of the protons to the high energy and low energy states. Half are going to go with the field and half are going to go against the field. So mm-hmm. the Boltzmann distribution that I talked about earlier yeah. is not an even distribution. It's Most of them will be in the low energy state and some are in the high energy state. But if your RF pulse is high enough energy, it will cause mm-hmm. the spins okay. to go and populate them evenly. Which means, and this is some R- NMR speak... But it means that the RF pulse eliminates the longitudinal magnetization and moves it to the transverse (laughs) magnetization. What that means for us is that any detectable signal from one direction is eliminated and it's now all Uh, in that 90 degrees. So
2: they're not. signal. If that magnet, like if you took this population of protons with the same direction of spins, they wouldn't have. A magnetic field in your up and down at my head and my feet anymore they'd only have a magnetic field yep. across my arms like that would be the direction of the night because their
0: spins field. are evenly mm-hmm.
1: distributed yes yeah okay cool yes and they're all synced up in phase and so then what happens so we've we've flipped them into this transverse magnetization and um
0: transverse just means at 90 degrees
1: yes we've flipped them i'll just say we've flipped them 90 degrees and synced them all up. When we turn this pulse off, they will all process back into their random configurations that they were before. Again, they're still with or against the main magnetic field, but they will return to their original spin angles and energy states.
0: So the DJ has now turned off the Macarena and is playing a different song. Most of us are still facing the DJ dancing, but we're all dancing kind of differently but some of us are facing away from the DJ because that's what, how we dance, you know?
1: Exactly. I love this analogy. <laughs> this is this is great. But everyone is still processing to the music because yeah. they're still in we're still the be-not field.
0: It's just we're not yeah. all dancing the Macarena in the same direction anymore. Or in two directions, I
1: guess. Exactly. <laughs> and so as people stop doing the Macarena, because not everyone stops at the same time, and some people might still do it even when it's kind of awkward to do it. Yeah. Um, this difference in returning to their alignment with the b-naught field will be picked up by the same rf coil that flipped them all but not each proton is going to do it the same way and so we can see two different types of what's called relaxation Mm -hmm. t1 relaxation which is spin lattice relaxation and t2 relaxation which is spin spin relaxation i will explain them both don't worry so we flip them all Everyone's dancing the Macarena and then the DJ's turned off the Macarena and we're going to start going back to uh, dancing our own ways. The T1 spin lattice relaxation is a slow process back to equilibrium, back to everybody dancing, fist bumping kind of thing, aligning with the b 0 field.
0: Pointing at the DJ or 180
1: degrees from the DJ. Exactly. The time and manner in which these protons realign reflects the interaction between the proton and its environment. you okay. and the the club and the DJ and all the atmosphere are going back to pointing to the Dj and this is this is a slow process and it's it reflects the greater environment that the proton or the processing nucleus feels so when we go to detect this when we see t1 relaxation it shows us what that proton is is feeling in its greater environment and how it's affected by, you know, other things that are around it that aren't other spins. Because T2 relaxation or spin-spin relaxation is a very quick process as all of the protons get out of sync. So remember when we flipped them, Mm -hmm. it put them all in phase. They're all in sync. Everyone is doing the Macarena exactly at the same time. Mm -hmm. I was doing the Macarena. (laughs) Um, The T2 relaxation is when the music turns off, everyone kind of forgets exactly what the tempo was, and everyone starts to get out of sync. But they're, most people are still doing the Macarena. It's just they're not in sync anymore. So the reason this happens, the reason that the spins get out of sync with each other is because they feel the magnetic moments from all the other protons next to them. You know, they're looking at their friends doing the Macarena, and they're like, oh, they're ahead. Oh, no, I'm behind. Oh, I'm," and, and they start to, because of the magnetic moments of all the other protons... Okay, the Macarena moments of all the other friends. They get out of sync. And... The T2 relaxation gives an indication of the proton's interaction okay. with other protons. And this helps us see how one proton on a molecule is different from another proton on a molecule. So long as they're not what's called chemically equivalent, basically they look the same in the NMR spectrometer. But you can that's how you can see different mm-hmm. protons on a molecule. And that's what helps you determine the structure of a molecule.
0: Because if a proton is maybe at the left side of the dance floor and another proton is at the right side of the dance floor, the protons that surround them, or their friends that surround them, are gonna have different Macarena moments. And so each of them is gonna relax their spin back at different times because they're surrounded by different friends.
1: Exactly, and that's T2 relaxation. And then eventually everyone's gonna turn back towards or away from the DJ and fist pump to the music that he's playing now in T1 relaxation. Mm -hmm. So that's the two different types of relaxation. They will come back when we talk about MRI. Um, do you have any questions about... That's that's kind of basically, at a very basic level, that's how NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance... Re- <laughs> said it again. <laughs> nuclear magnetic resonance works. Should I summarize? Brief summary? Okay. Nuclear. You've got the nucleus, usually of hydrogen. The nucleus is spinning. This causes it to have a magnetic moment, like a bar magnet. If you put this bar magnet in a field... Because it's the spinning proton, it's going to process. It's going to actually spin itself. You can put a coil around these processing protons to see them through voltages as they process in and out of the coil. If to maximize your ability to see them, you want them to spin at 90 degrees to the magnetic field so that they're really sweeping in and out of the coil. To do that, you use what's called an RF pulse to flip them all to 90 degrees. This also makes them all spin at the same time, or in phase, and it gives them energy so that they are in an even distribution of high and low energy states. Then, when you turn off the RF pulse, they will relax in two ways. One, called T1 relaxation, is very slow and gives an indication of how they are relaxing back to the environment that they feel. In our analogy of the dance floor, it's how when you change the song, everyone stops doing the Macarena at their own time and goes back to dancing either towards the DJ or away from the DJ in sync with the music that's playing. The other relaxation is spin-spin relaxation or T2 relaxation, and this is much quicker as people get out of phase of doing the Macarena when the music is turned off and they can't remember exactly how to do the Macarena. Any questions?
2: I think that was a really good summary. I think that's
0: a pretty good summary.
1: Okay, thank you. It's it's very complicated, but I really think it's interesting because yes. the ways that we use NMR um, are fascinating because this is a way that we are able to look at molecules and samples and humans without invading them, without Mm -hmm. pumping them full of radiation without Mm. dissecting them open, cutting them open, or firing x-rays, or any of that stuff. Um, And so it's super cool. So, magnetic resonance imaging, MRI. Beth, you've had an MRI, right? We were talking about this.
2: Yep, I've had Um,
1: two. What did they tell you before you had the MRI?
2: I don't think they told me anything, actually. Um, Apart from the safety stuff, like
0: um, I was gonna say, hopefully they told you not to wear any metal. Yeah,
2: they were like, don't bring in any metal. Um, hmm. Don't have any metal on you. If you have any metal in your clothes, then you have to take off whatever that piece of clothing is. Um, mm-hmm.
1: I'll give. Uh, we'll get to the reason why they don't let you have any metal in, in even in the room where the MRI machine is. That's
0: a giant magnet.
1: Well, yeah. But, so okay, so maybe I'll say it now. So <laughs> we use a giant magnet.
2: Yeah, but not all metals are intrinsically magnetic. Right. The
1: concern is that in an MRI, in the room, the magnet is always on. Mm -hmm. Because we need to have a very, what's called, homogeneous field, we want the magnetic field to be consistent and at the same level all the way throughout the machine, the big machine that you put a Mm -hmm. human in. You have to make sure that it's on all the time so that it doesn't, Mm -hmm. you know, change.
0: So the magnetic field is stable yeah
2: there are probably two concerns um just that like the first thing is that ramping a magnet takes a lot of time so like getting up to full fi- full field will mm-hmm. take time and you don't want to be doing that for every patient and then the second thing is that you get hysteresis so like if you turn a magnet on and then turn it off and turn it on and turn it off then the behavior of the mm-hmm. magnet changes
1: yeah yeah and that was something i actually didn't know i thought when you went in for an mri like you know they flick the switch turn on the machine (laughs) magnet ramps up boom 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 yeah i'd never thought about no they once yeah i i I read that you know once the machine is shipped to the hospital or the facility that has the mri machine they turn it on and then you can never go in that room with a magnet and you there's some photos i saw online of you know things that have been sucked into an mri machine because you know someone brought a card in and it gets and it's a huge strong magnet so it it'll rip anything from your hand and fly it towards the big magnet yeah So. so i want to take a quick step back and talk about the naming of magnetic resonance imaging because originally when they developed it it was called nuclear magnetic resonance imaging but it was developed in the 50s to 70s around that time in the u.s and a lot of people were had an aversion to the name nuclear magnetic resonance they didn't They didn't like the idea of, you know, a medical technique using nuclear things, even though fundamentally it's about the nucleus of hydrogen. So they changed the name. It's called Magnetic Resonance Imaging, MRI. Um, And also it wouldn't get confused or associated with other nuclear projects around the time.
0: I have just something very short about like the fact, like the word nuclear and how ubiquitous it is in science to mean like a million different things. So like whenever I search like nuclear dynamics Mm. of neurons, and then I in like PubMed and I get like a bunch of physics and chemistry related papers, and I'm like, right, people don't mean the nucleus for you is something very different from the nucleus for us. Even within neuroscience. (laughs) So to me a nucleus is the center of a cell which contains the DNA. But you also have nuclei, so multiple nucleuses, many nuclei, within the brain that are just like Regions of cells that perform a specific
1: function. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah that oh, really that's confusing. confusing.
0: <laughs> that was, yeah, that was added a whole other level to it when I learned about all of these different nuclei within the brain. Yeah. That's That wasn't useful science to call everything a nucleus. This has made my life very hard. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> digressions aside.
1: Well, yeah. So for good reason, they, they changed the name to Magnetic Resonance Imaging or MRI for short. And so because the human body is mostly water and a lot of fat, um, this is abundant in hydrogen nuclei. So what we do is we stick the human in the big magnetic field. And so this causes all the protons in your body to align with the big magnetic field B-naught.
2: Just in case anyone was wondering, you do not feel that.
1: Right. Right.
0: Yes. I mean, we're always in a magnetic field. There's no gap Yeah, that's it.
2: true. But this is a much, much stronger magnetic field. Yes. As you will know if you have already listened to our episode on the Earth's magnetic field.
1: Beth, do okay. you remember what, in Tesla, what the Earth's magnetic field is?
2: No, but I can look it up very quickly.
1: It was really small. And yeah. yeah. Well, an MRI, an MRI is on the order of one to three Tesla.
2: Okay, so... The Earth's magnetic field is between twenty-five to sixty-five microtesla, so that's fifteen thousand times less strong than your average MRI.
1: Yeah. 15, so because this magnet is so quite a lot. yeah, yeah, fifteen thousand times is huge, um, and so because the magnet is so strong, all your protons align <laughs> with the magnetic field. But in MRI, a gradient is employed on the z-axis, think head to toe. So the precession of the protons is not the same throughout your body completely. And this allows us to select a slice of the body to look at. Oh, interesting, so that's how we look at brain slices. Exactly, so Beth, we're gonna do an MRI of your brain. So we (laughs) stick you in and there's a z-axis gradient and we're selecting a slice of your brain. So we put you in, we have this gradient head to toe, we select a slice. We're going to give you a a brain MRI. So we get a slice from your brain because of this gradient of our main magnetic field. Then we generate our RF pulse and flip all the spins. But before we turn off the pulse, we do a couple things. A second gradient called the phase encoding gradient is established in the y-axis. And you can think of that as like the up-down axis or the back-belly axis. Okay. So we put another gradient in from your back to your belly, and this causes the protons to process at slightly different rates across that gradient. So the protons in your back, for instance, are going to be processing a little bit slower than the protons in your belly, or if we're talking about your head, the back of your head is going to process a little bit slower mm-hmm. than your forehead. Okay? This phase encoding gradient is then switched off, and all of the protons go back to their precession rate at the Larmor frequency, but they're slightly out of phase with each other from bottom to top, mm-hmm. from the back of your head to the front of your head. So we can actually then tell from back of head to front of head where they're going to be, where they're going to be processing, because they're a little bit out of phase with each other. Then we add a final gradient in the x-axis, or the left-right axis. So that's ear to ear. Yep. (laughs) This is called the frequency encoding gradient.
0: In one ear and out
1: the other. Exactly. The gradient goes in one ear and out the other. And it causes the protons to process from left to right at slightly different rates again. So then we can definitively distinguish each segment from left to right. Mm -hmm. We've basically created a gradient grid from head to toe, left to right, back to belly, and we can now specifically pick a segment of the body Mm -hmm. to detect.
0: And this is how we get like beautiful 3D renderings of MRI brains because, and stack all the slices and you just can really figure out where everything was, where Mm. all of the images were taken Mm -hmm. from.
2: For my second MRI, after I had it, they, like, sent me the images. And you can, like, scroll through them and look at different layers of your body. Yeah, it's really good. Mm. It's, like, really creepy, Ooh. but also really cool.
1: How long did it take? How long were you in there? I don't the...
2: honestly know, but I feel like it was... I have a feeling it was, like, half an hour, but it, it was, like, in the range from half an hour to an hour, I think.
1: That fast? Oh, I... Because reading about this and, and learning about how they actually set up the gradients, and then basically you scan each segment of the body mm. um, and get an intensity. Mm-hmm. Um, It sounds like it takes a long time, oh, wow. but half an hour. I each, thought it was going to be on the order of hours. Each
2: scan, like, because, like you say, like, they set up the intensities differently each time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, the directions and stuff. Um... And each of those scans, like the longest ones, lasted for like two minutes or something.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it scans very fast. Wow. Because what happens is it sets up these gradients, gets everything um, out of phase, and then it records the intensity of the signal when the RF signal is turned off and all the protons relax back to processing about the main Mm -hmm. magnetic field. And if you remember, the relaxation is going to be different for each proton because it feels different environments and stuff. And so the different intensities give an idea of where in the body those protons are located. And so to kind of summarize all these phase encoding gradients and and these steps, um, the system is tuned to a particular phase in this matrix, in this grid that we've set up. So we catch the precise slice in the body and record its intensity because they're all going to kind of hit a maximum, hit their maximum intensity mm-hmm. at different times because they're all... Processing at the same rate, but mm-hmm. in different phases. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So it I think it's really cool because we take a random assortment of processing protons, mm-hmm. line them all up, and then fine-tune them so they're all processing differently, but distinguishably. Mm-hmm. And then we record their intensity.
2: That's amazing.
1: Yeah, and so each of these squares, each of these one little units that we record is called a voxel because it's a particular volume of intensity. It's not a pixel, um, which is just a 2D
2: Ah, yeah, I never knew that. That's really yeah. There you weird. go. There's there's your fun
1: fact for the episode. Ah. It's a voxel. Mm-hmm. A voxel. I like it. And so, because remember earlier we talked about T1 and T2 relaxation, they. Are different for different areas of the body so our protons right. are going to relax back at different rates and give us different intensities so we can distinguish between water fat bone, mm-hmm. cerebral spinal fluid and many other tissues and fluids because the protons there are all going to relax back at different rates so that's and... what t1
0: and t2 stands for in mri oh my god i yes! should have already looked this up yes! and known this, but i've just always been so just... can... like ah t1 and t2 they're two different types of mri and they have two different looks but I didn't know any further than that.
1: Yeah. And so T1, mm-hmm. remember, is spin lattice relaxation. So a T1-weighted image gives a, an image where the tissues are all bright and things like water and okay. cerebrospinal fluid are dark. A T2-weighted image, remember, T2 is spin-spin relaxation. A T2-weighted image uh, gives cerebrospinal fluid and liquids as white, uh, bright and tissues are dark. Yeah. So you can get these contrasts based on how you tune the instrument to look at spin-lattice relaxation or spin-spin relaxation. Um, So yeah, you can tune the instrument, you can see uh, tissues being bright or cerebrospinal fluid being bright, but you can also do NMR on certain other elements, or anything that has differential magnetic susceptibility. And a really cool thing I came across in my research is hemoglobin.
0: For those who don't know though, hemoglobin is the blood protein that carries around oxygen But the reason why it's interesting and magnetic is because it has a structural component that
1: needs iron to function. So all hemoglobin has iron. So hemoglobin can be in different magnetic states. It can be paramagnetic when it's deoxygenated or dimagnetic when it's oxygenated. Paramagnetic means that it has an, in in the hemoglobin structure, it has an unpaired electron and is attracted to magnetic fields whereas dimagnetic means that all of the electrons are paired and it's attracted. Nope. Oh. <laughs> it's <laughs> repelled by magnetic fields. Did you write attracted twice? I did. I wrote
0: attracted twice. <laughs> twice. <laughs> Maybe you are just attracted to NMR.
1: <laughs> I know. I love it. So paramagnetic means that it has an unpaired electron and it's attracted to magnetic fields. Dimagnetic means that all of the electrons are paired and it's repelled by magnetic fields. Mm-hmm. And so this means that hemoglobin shows up Differently in NMR if it's got oxygen or if it doesn't have oxygen.
0: So if it's in the lungs versus other places.
1: What do you mean if it's in the lungs or if it's in other places? Well, I mean
0: most of the oxygenated blood is found, or hemoglobin is would be found in the lung. Well, I guess in certain portions of the lungs.
2: But also in your arteries, right?
0: Yeah, I guess also you could look at like would this show up the difference between your arteries and your veins then too?
1: Or in the brain. You can see oxygenated blood coming into the brain and the deoxygenated blood leaving yeah cool this was all this was all discovered uh, by a man named uh seji ogawa he was a japanese researcher in the 1990s mm-hmm. and he and his team did a lot of research into the how how hemoglobin shows up in an nmr spectrum because i thought going into this you can look at oxygen in nmr And I thought that's how you did oxygen imaging in the brain. But it's actually with hemoglobin, which I think is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if maybe, maybe you've seen on, on science shows or some things where they have a, uh, someone's in an MRI and they've got a picture of the brain and they look up where the brain is lighting up. Yeah. What centers of your brain is lighting up. And that's based on oxygenation of the Mm. brain.
2: That's amazing. That's really cool. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's my bit about MRI. I wanted to briefly talk about one paper that I came across that is the NMR of pasta. Shh. Beth, I thought you would enjoy this.
2: I, I am so excited. Like, <laughs> oh I'm, my
0: god. I am there.
1: So we were back in 2015. We were all on exchange in Sweden together. That's how we met. It's true. And when I was in Sweden, I was taking a course called Magnetic Resonance Spectroscopy and Imaging. Super cool course, really got into the fundamentals and (laughs) maths of NMR. And the final project was to take a research paper and describe the NMR concepts involved. So from the list of papers that they gave, I enthusiastically chose the one that was about food. As we do.
0: (laughs) What brings us together.
1: (laughs) Exactly. It's a 2015 paper titled Structure and Nutritional Properties of Pasta from Triticum Monococcum and Triticum Durum species, a combined proton NMR, MRI and digestibility study. So I want to show you uh, I'll show you the figure in a second. So they used a whole bunch of NMR and MRI techniques, but they compared two different varieties of pasta at different cooking times and they found that T1 relaxation times remember the spin lattice relaxation times indicated the water mobility in the starch matrix of the pasta so they could see how cooked the pasta was based on T1 no, relaxation I times I mean,
0: That's so yeah know. I just like. Are they using like an M- NMR machine or are they using an MRI here?
1: Both. They used both.
0: So they put pasta so... in an MRI. They took an incredibly expensive medical <laughs> machine and put pasta in it. Yes.
1: Because So this was, so this was NMR. The T1 relaxation oh indicating the mobility gosh. of the starch matrix was NMR. <laughs> they also did NMR on the T2 relaxation to indicate the starch structure of the pastas to see how they were structured. Yeah. Then they did a T2-weighted MRI image <laughs> showing the inhomine- inhomogeneities in the structure oh, of a cooking time up to 15 minutes. And I want to share my <laughs> screen here. I want to show you this. Oh, my
0: goodness. This is what
1: pasta what looks like. Is this is the figure from the paper. For our listeners, we'll put this up on our, on our Instagram. Yeah. But you can see the large A and large B are different pasta samples and then the three different, um, I think, image weighting. Yeah. But you can see they've got a little ring on the inside where it's basically not cooked yeah, yet. Yeah,
0: so the water can't get in or or the water... It, yeah. Exactly.
1: <clears throat> and so Look at that! A and B and C and D are the same cooking time. I think it's like five minutes. And then mm-hmm. E and F are 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. So you can and see... And you can see it's much more cooked than E and F. It's much more cooked in E and F. So trust these researchers to uh, figure out the best cooking times because guess where they were from, Beth?
2: Were they Italian?
1: They were Italian. Oh my yes. gosh! <laughs> my gosh. <laughs> it was an Italian research team across a number of different institutes, but they were looking at—I—I think—they were really looking at how to get just that perfect al dente pasta. Okay, so, so
2: I have two things. The first thing is really extremely important, and mm-hmm. for all of our Italian listeners, we have to know the two types of pasta that were being studied. Actually, I have so three was, things. The first thing is what type of pasta was being studied.
1: It was two uh, wheat vari- or yeah, two wheat varieties called Triticum monococcum and Triticum durum. I don't know what the shape was. The shape looks like it's like a, but a, it looks like a tube, right? So it's like either yeah, it looks like or something.
2: Like rigatoni or something.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, the second question was, what's the perfect cooking time?
1: <laughs> so they found that up to 15 minutes, at, at 15 minutes, you get uh, elimination Food of these...
2: types of pasta.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: So 15 minutes, yeah. you get All
2: right. Good even
0: penetration of water throughout the nice cooked starch lattice structure <laughs> of the pasta.
1: I just found the... Beth, I just found the paper. Um Thank you. Approximately four kilogram samples of the two wheat flours were processed into short-cut pastas, Macaroni! macaroni. With a P630VR lab pasta oh, maker. Oh my god! <laughs>
0: There's a lab pasta maker? I want a lab pasta maker! I love science! I know what I'm asking my lab for next. <laughs> this is like... <laughs> we yeah. have a lab waffle maker, but like, we need a lab pasta maker. that my
2: lab doesn't have one already. Yeah,
0: for just like those yeah. lunch afternoons where you
1: have like group pasta time to pass the time yeah right
2: like that happens all the time in Italy.
1: (laughs) past the time to pass the time so i
2: just wanted to say that it is amazing the kinds of things that scientists spend their extremely expensive (laughs) equipment and their hard like hard fought for time and research projects (laughs) doing
1: yeah i would like to say uh to the credit of these authors their main um thesis was to see if this new type of wheat variety could behave like the standard varietal of wheat that is being used okay. to make pasta. So it's not just seeing the ideal cooking time, okay. but I right. kind of, I like to simplify it and think that they were just really looking to I see like how to I make like al dente it. pasta. Yeah. So I have a quiz. Oh good. That's, that's the end of, of my uh, talking at you about magnetic resonance, mm-hmm. um, but I do have a quiz. So okay. I think first I need to hear your buzzer sounds, Beth, what's yours?
0: that's the sound of the mri is that yeah <laughs>
1: it's <laughs> good i like it um and sienna what's yours
0: um mine's gonna be macaroni okay uh, can i change mine i'm not sure okay. if i want that one or if i want.
2: hey macaroni <laughs> uh-huh.
1: <laughs> all right so first question yes. on the quiz what quantum mechanical property of protons is essential for NMR?
0: Macaroni. Hey Macarena.
1: <laughs> I heard Sienna first.
0: Um it is the spin.
1: That is correct. And for a bonus nucleus. point for a bonus point, can you give me the two quantized states of spin? Up and down. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Well done. Okay, question the second. What is T2 relaxation?
2: Hey Macarena.
1: All right, I heard Beth first.
2: It's spin-spin relaxation, right? So it's the one where protons are interacting with other protons in their environment. Like when you and your friends are still doing the Macarena after everybody else is finished because you're just the coolest kids in the club.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What specifically happens to the spins though?
2: They go from being all strictly aligned with the magnetic field to like at various times falling out with it and just going back to a relaxed, like random
0: state.
1: Yeah. So T you relaxation, yeah. mm, yeah, Sienna? I was gonna say that they
0: followed a phase with each other.
1: Yes, that's what I was looking for. I mean, Beth, you're correct, but Sienna, that's uh, the key thing is T relaxation is the dephasing of the Everyone's starting to do the Macarena kind of out of You can't keep
0: time as soon as the beat has gone. That's
1: essentially what happens. Okay, third question. What did Seiji Ogawa discover in the nineteen nineties? Oh my God,
0: we just talked about this too. That's so embarrassing. I remember. I remember hearing his name and being like, "Oh yeah, cool." Um,
1: So he was a Japanese. Yeah, I know. I
0: remember that entire sentence, like Seiji Ogawa, a Japanese researcher in the nineties. But then from there, my memory goes blank.
1: (laughs) He was working with MRI.
0: Uh. Oxygen. Good. Hemoglobin. You,
1: you got to buzz in. You got to buzz in.
0: Oh, yeah. Hey, <laughs> Sienna.
1: Sienna buzzed in Was first. Was it the
0: oxygen hemoglobin imaging?
1: Yes. Yeah. He oh. he and his team discovered that hemoglobin uh, exhibits. Sorry, maybe you should explain this.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know. So hemoglobin being the exciting protein that it is and having an iron in it uh, can exist in two states, paramagnetic or something else magnetic essentially either aligned with the magnetic field or against the magnetic field depending on whether it is electron lacking or electronically paired this is like the worst possible use of words that i've ever used but essentially if it's missing an electron it will be uh it likes the magnetic field and if it has all of its electrons coupled and paired up then it doesn't like the magnetic field and this leads to different um results when you're then imaging the, doing the MRI, magnetic resonance. Yeah. Yes. it's There's a lot of hand-wavy definitions there because I clearly <laughs> didn't listen very well to this section.
1: <laughs> no, that's You're right. Um, I don't think it's necessarily that they're with or against the magnetic mm-hmm. field, but it's that they are attracted to right. or attracted repulsed to or by a repulsed. magnetic field.
0: So liked yeah. or don't so you like can... was better with the second time around. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's paramagnetism and dimagnetism. Di- I was going to say is... bimagnetism,
0: but then I'm like, Sienna, not everyone is bi.
1: <laughs> no, die. It's with a D. Die, die magnetism. <laughs> don't want to assume the uh, proton sexuality. Protons orientation. Okay, I think you guys are both tied. I, I don't know. I think I think you're tied here. So we need a bonus mm-hmm. question. Finally, according no, to the 2015. Winning. No, it's fine. Shh, no, shh, we're shh, tied. Shh, it's tied. It's tied up. This is for all the, all the pastas. Oh, according gosh. to the 2015 paper. At what cooking time does a T2-weighted MRI Yay! image not show inhomogeneities in the pasta structure? Beth.
2: 15 minutes.
1: That's correct. I put that in there thinking that you wouldn't, you wouldn't <laughs> get it, but then you asked I me to recognize think, yeah.
0: <laughs> They were using fresh pasta for this and not like... They
1: were. Yes, they made the oh, fresh really? pasta normally yes, doesn't need to cook it. as That's long.
2: That's a long time to cook fresh pasta.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. They even listed. Well, they dried. It, so it's, I'm sorry. No, it wasn't fresh pasta. They dried it. Like they made it. Um, they even said, they even said, um. They because they dried it at different temperatures okay. too. Pasta drying was carried out at two different temperatures, um, in a dark drying cabinet from Braibanti Padova, Italy, at a constant seventy five percent relative humidity. Like they. Went into detail to make I love this that. pasta. You gotta
0: love detailed methods, though, right? Like that's really we could replicate this experiment now because they were careful to tell us about we how should. they dried yeah, the pasta. Yeah, we just have to get to Padua. Well, come yeah. over here, we okay. I can't wait. Have yeah. you guys ever made fresh pasta? I mean, before? it's
1: almost lunchtime for me. No, I want to. Yeah,
0: I have once. Okay, I tried, yeah. but I didn't have a rolling pin, so it was very, very difficult to get it like thin. Huh. What
1: yeah. Did, what did you use instead of a rolling pin? A wine bottle. <laughs> okay, <good>. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I've been there. I've done that.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. So I'd like to just highlight some of my sources. Um, I got a lot of good information from Wikipedia, as well as a brief history of nuclear magnetic resonance by Edwin D. Becker that was published in Analytical Chemistry in 93. Um, the Pain and integrated research lab at the University of Western Ontario and Dr. Keelodes for great visual representations on YouTube of how MRIs work. Uh, brain magnetic resonance imaging with contrast dependent on blood oxygenation by Seiji Ogawa from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 1990. Uh, Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine depictions of T1 and T2 weighted images. And the structural and nutritional properties of pasta from Triticon Monocarpum and Triticum durum species combined proton NMR, MRI, and digestibility study by Gabriella Passini, Fulvia Greco, Morano e Cremionini, Andrea Brandolini. Roberto Consonini and Maricela Guisoni from the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry in 2015. I hope I got those Italian pronunciations correct. Probably Your not. Your
2: efforts will be sincere. Your yeah, it will be noticed. And of course...
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course, I'd like to thank Alison for our intro and outro music. Not Yet a Doctor is brought to you by Alistair. Sienna. And Beth. We hope you'll tune in again soon. Thanks for listening.